You are listening to the official Acts 2 podcast. For more information and resources, please visit our website at www.acts2orlando.com. Somebody say, yay, God. And say it again like you mean it. There we go. That's what we need. Come on, a little enthusiasm in church. I've always been astounded at how a basketball game, a football game, a baseball game can put out and produce more noise than a church. I know numbers. I, I get that. But, I mean, if you were to equal, I just, it, it astounds me. It's like, it, I don't know why. We built a culture where sometimes in church you've got to be quiet. You have to be quiet. I think it's the place where we need to celebrate and shout. Somebody in here say, yay, God. Yay, God. Try that again. Yeah. There it is. Now we're getting to where we need to be. Good. You awake? Yes. Good. I hope so. All right. We've been in a series called Mythbusters, and I want to continue with that this morning. Um, I've been hearing through the grapevine that some of this stuff is kind of making people go a little dog-eared. Hmm? Good. Good. I'm hoping as much as anything else to challenge our belief system. I am not so much interested in trying to have correct theology as I am trying to create a, a culture and a people where we walk in freedom. Because how many of you know our theology, all of our theology is wrong at some level? We're all going to get to heaven and go, oh my gosh, I can't believe I said that. <laughs> it's it's going to happen to us. So it's not so much about being right. It's about being free. Yes. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. That's really the whole goal. So what we're doing here is just taking a look at commonly held beliefs. A lot of it uh, is found in charismatic Pentecostal circles, which is kind of what we are. So I think it's good for us to take a look at it. But to really live in new covenant realities, to really live in new covenant realities. So that's the goal. That's the heart behind all of this, this thing called Mythbusters. And today I'm going to talk a little bit about the whole thing of generational curses. Come on, anybody heard about that? Anybody heard about these generational curse stuff? Um, yeah, that's unfortunate. So we're going to take a look at it, see where we find it, where does it come from, what does the New Testament have to say about it, what does the Old Testament have to say about it, and what does it mean through the lens of Jesus. So I'm going to do an awful lot, uh, awfully fast. I'm going to throw a lot at you, so just get ready. If you've got your phones, you're ready to take notes. We're going to have scripture up there. Just, just get ready, and if I go too fast, say, Andrew, slow down, and I'll try to slow down, okay? I want to take a look first at some of these generational curse things where we get the idea from it, because it is biblical. It is biblical. It does come from something. It starts with this one right here. There's a few of them. And in Exodus 20, verse 5 and 6, it says this, You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord, am your God. I'm a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. So even if we take that verse for a moment and just take a look at it, it says, we forget the part that says, those who hate me but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me. So even if we were to take just the old covenant passage right there, it would only apply to those who hate God. But if you love God, then it shows mercy. Uh, it gets better though. Are you guys ready for more good news? It gets better. So even if we just take that right there, it's almost like we can't build a complete theology on curses and that I'm living under a curse. Do you love God? How many in here love God? All right. So just even from an old covenant standpoint, you're free because if you love God, he's showing mercy to thousands and to thousands. Also, even the context of this, it comes from the commandment, the first commandment, or you're not supposed to have any other gods, right? 
You shall have no other gods before me. Even this is coming from that. It's really about idolatry. That's what he's speaking to. That's the context. Sometimes these things promote these generational teachings to the degree that whatever problem you might have now can probably be traced back to a past curse. You look at marriage problems, divorce, accidents, poverty, unusual deaths. Somehow, if we're not careful, we've got to trace that back and find it's some kind of generational curse. So then it becomes a matter of guesswork, which I find incredibly difficult because I have to ask the question, how did I miss any? Did I, do I have to keep going back and looking for them? Here's some more scripture, Old Testament scripture, that we use to verify the generational sins of our ancestors. Exodus 34, verse 7. Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that they will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generation. Now, I have to stop here and ask the question. Has anybody ever heard this before? Am I just talking to myself or have you heard anything around this before? I remember hearing this as a child. I remember growing up under this belief system that somehow the sin that I'm in right now had to do with my forefathers. It had to do with something they had done, and God is just visiting that down on me. And I don't know about you, but growing up under that was just a weight that was just absolutely unbearable. I was like, well, what am I supposed to do about it? I can't do anything about it. We're going to find that there are things, teachings that we have that hold on to this generational curse belief that cause us to have to keep going back and looking at that. We're going to look at that in just a moment, though. Here's another one, Numbers 14, 18. The Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy. Are you noticing something about these passages? That we see the generational curse, we see the iniquity thing, but what we're missing is the whole front part of it, that he's wanting to show mercy and loving kindness. It's in his heart. The Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. We need to note that all of these passages, God passages, God is dealing with a nation and a people according to his covenant of law. The Mosaic covenant was conditional. I'm not going to have us look at it for time's sake, but I want to talk about it for a second. Um, Exodus 18, there's a passage there where God has brought the people of Israel out of Egypt. And he says to them directly, he says, I want to make all of you priests. All of you. I want to make you priests. You guys remember the story? And this is when Moses is up on the mountain. You got the lightning. You got the thunder. You got all this stuff happening up top. And the people are looking at that going, I'm thinking no. And it would make sense. I mean, if we're being honest, we see this stuff from the new covenant lens. We look backwards. But if we're being honest, if you were sitting at the bottom of a mountain knowing that Moses went up there and it was covered with a cloud and dark and thunder and lightning was coming from it. And God says to you, yeah, I want to make you a priest so you can do this too. We might look at that a little different. Well, that's what happened in Exodus 18. God comes along and says, I want a covenant with you where you're all priests. And we know what happened. They said to him, nope. God, that's not what we want. We want a mediator. Why don't you talk to Moses, and then he can come talk to us. Now, God is true to his word, amen? Amen. So he makes a covenant with them, but the covenant was based on what they desired, not what was in his heart. So now we've got a covenant where we've got a mediator and a go-between. Now, I love the story because even in the middle of people rejecting what God wants, in that picture, in that story, how history unfolded itself, it showed that there was an absolute need for a mediator. That's good news to me. Because if I do something wrong and I miss what God is saying, that even in that, he's going to turn it around for good and I'm going to be able to see his hand in it. Come on, does this help you? 
We live our lives in such a place that it's like, we can't do anything wrong, can't do anything wrong, can't do anything wrong. Listen, do you think God's a little bit bigger than that? That even if I mess up, I'm not giving you a license to sin. I'm just simply saying that even if we mess up with a repentant heart that turns back to God, even in the mess up, he can show himself great in it. Come on, that's a good word for somebody here. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago that God only remembers what's done in repentance. He only remembers what's done in repentance. If you don't believe me, look at Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith. Gideon, mighty man of valor, man of faith. He was not. I know the story. I read it. He was not. Sarah trusted God and God Isaac. That's not the full story. There's more to it. But I'm thankful that God only remembers what's done in repentance. So even when we have these stories where the Israelites, they're, they're told, I want all of you to be priests. And they're like, no, why don't you just make a few of us priests? Let you guys talk to God and come communicate it back to us. That even in that covenant that was designed, that Mosaic covenant, which was imperfect, even that pointed to the need for Jesus. All of it was about a mediator. I need a priest. And then we see Jesus come on in the order of Melchizedek, who was king and priest. He came in, absolutely fulfilled the very thing that the people demanded of him. They demanded we want a mediator. Oh, man, I don't know about you. That boggles my mind to know that God's infinite wisdom and how he unfolds this is just, it moves me. In Ezekiel chapter 18, Ezekiel begins to prophesy about a promise that's coming. So we're still old covenant, but he's pointing to something bigger. Ezekiel 18, 20. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father... Can we say amen to that? The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon the righteous, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon the wicked. You see him? He's beginning to, even in an old covenant standard, there's prophetic words coming out that are speaking to the coming king. It's indirect, but it's it's about the coming king. He's coming on the scene. He's going to change the entire dynamic. He's changing the entire process of how you're going to relate to me. God's mercy is always greater than his judgment. Did you hear that? God's mercy is always, everybody say it with me, always, always greater than his judgment. James chapter 2 talks about it. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Come on. We could ponder that for about six months. Just sit on that and think about that for a while. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And even in these old covenant passages, we see God's heart wanting to reveal kindness, loving kindness, mercy. He's wanting to show it. We're told that God visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation who hate him. God is visiting the iniquity of the third and fourth generations. But it's in reference to a continual idolatry that's being practiced. It's not being repented of. And all of this stuff, church, is a promise that comes under an old covenant, not a new covenant. I want to be a new covenant believer. Anybody with me? I've really come to this point in my life. Like I, I, I know what God's called me to. I know what message I am at my core I'm supposed to preach. And it is new covenant realities. It's about the new identity. It's about the changed man. It's about, it's about the vicarious man. It's about Romans 5. It's about Adam coming on the scene and botching everything up, and then Jesus coming on the scene and fixing it all. And it boggles my mind. I will spend the rest of my natural-born life on this planet trying to understand the cross. 
I think it has a much far-reaching effect than we give it worth. It reaches deeper. It reaches further. It all has to come back to landing squarely on the shoulders of Jesus. I'm still discovering this. So let's talk about it from a New Testament standpoint, this breaking of curses. Has anyone in here ever thought, I may be cursed because of what you see patterns in your life? Anybody? Okay, a few. If you listen to some teachings today, and I'm not here to try to pick on teachings. That's not the point, but I'm just saying some of them try to reinforce that thought. Generational, you ready? Generational repentance is taught as the method needed to break these curses. Generational repentance. It's a spiritual mapping used to target the strongholds the enemy has in a family along with a host of other biblical teachings. Did you know, if you've been around here long enough, you know this. What does the word repentance mean? It means to change your mind. Now, I, I grew up thinking it meant to turn around. Anybody hear that one growing up? It means to turn around and go in the opposite direction. Well, you can do that for a little while, but I guarantee you, if your mind hasn't been changed, you can't sustain that. It's impossible because we behave in a way that's consistent with what we believe. Right, Andrew? Yes. We do behave in a way that's consistent with what we believe. Repentance literally means to change your mind. Metanoia is the word. The fruit of repentance is turning and going in the opposite direction. That's the fruit. So, yes, it has meaning, but you guys are with me, right? That's the fruit of it. If I try to produce fruit on my own, it's impossible. I can't sustain it. I remember growing up trying to think this. I was told that repentance meant to turn around and go in the opposite direction. So I kept trying to turn my life around, go in the opposite direction, only to realize it's humanistic in its nature from the very beginning. And I can't produce anything. It took... Jesus coming on the scene and showing me what really reality was, now I have something to think differently about. Repentance means to change your mind. Even our English word, if you break it down, repent. Re means what? Again. Again. Pent, what is that? High. It's where we get the word penthouse. Top corner building, you know, lofty. Again, to the high place. Doesn't Isaiah say something like that? My thoughts are not like your thoughts, and my ways are not like your ways. My thoughts, my ways, they're what? Higher. Higher. True repentance means I'm coming back to a way of thinking exactly like God thinks. This is what the new covenant is all about. It's a revelation of the person of Jesus to bring us into an understanding that gets us out of humanistic, performance, religious activity and tells us it all lands on Jesus, and it's scandalous. I'm convinced of this. It's, the message of the gospel is incredibly scandalous because it so much lands on Jesus that it offends our natural mind. I would like it if it was 50% Jesus and 50% me. Sorry, front row. <laughs> I would like it a lot better if it was 50% Jesus and 50% me because then I've got something to offer and I would feel a lot better about myself. Guys, can I just go ahead and cut your legs out from under you right now and tell you you got nothing to do with it? But Andrew, there's something, there's confession. Yeah, confession. Confess what you believe. You have to come back to a belief. I believe from a new covenant reality, belief is absolutely everything. Belief is everything. Belief is not a mental assent to a creed. Belief is an internal, visceral, digested understanding of the word of God so much so that you live from that position and nothing changes it. Does that help? It's not just a mental thing where I say Jesus Christ is Lord. No, it's more than that. Confess, the word, even in Greek, homo legeo, confess, it means same word. 
Confession isn't even so much about what you've done wrong. It's about what he's done that's right. You hold on to your confession of faith, not your confession of sin. My confession of faith is, Jesus, you are Lord. What were we doing this morning? We're, We're saying the name of Jesus. Why? Because inside that name carries power. There is something about saying the name of Jesus in the middle of something that's very difficult. Guys, I'm still trying to learn this myself. I'm not speaking from a place I've got this. There's something about being mature enough to be in something very, very difficult and to meditate and say the name of Jesus. 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 Because in saying that, what are we doing? Confession. We're starting to say his name is above all names. It's higher than every other name. Everything has to bow the knee to that. I'm still learning that one. But there's something about it when we come back to this place where we recognize it's all Jesus. It is all Jesus. Something begins to shift. This is true repentance. Oh, boy. In the New Testament, in Jesus' ministry, talk about that. He cursed only one thing. Anybody know what it was? It was a fig tree. Why did he curse a fig tree? I always thought that was really weird. Poor tree. Didn't do anything to you curses a fig tree. Did you know that's an idiom? That the fig tree is an idiom in the Hebraic life. Do you remember when Jesus saw Nathanael and he said, I saw you under the fig tree? That's a Hebraic idiom. It meant that I'm looking and searching for God. So when Jesus cursed the fig tree, he's saying that whole system no longer produces fruit. No more. Don't bear a fruit any longer. Later on, he sees the tree and it's still dead. Come on, there's something to that. That whole Hebraic system, it pointed to something, Jesus, who ultimately fulfilled it. So if I continue to live under an old Hebraic mindset, I'm actually putting myself back under the law. Hello. If I commit a crime in Argentina and I get out of that country and move to the United States and there's no extradition treaty... I'm now in a country where I'm no longer a wanted man. Hello? The minute I go back to Argentina, I'm a wanted man. I think there's a lot of us in Christianity that keep going back to the old covenant, and we find ourselves as wanted men. We choose to live in it, and we wonder why we're being chased all the time. Proverbs says the guilty man runs when no one pursues. This is why I don't run. I look at people running down the street, and I'm like, guilty. I don't know if that's a good application of that, but that's just the way I look at it. Jesus also spoke about curses that come from people. In the only reference in the New Testament where he tells us what to do if someone curses us, Jesus says, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. It's Luke 6 and Matthew 5. He did not give us fancy methods or special words on how to break curses. That's a good word, Andrew. He taught that believers specifically how to deal with curses without any superstitious teachings that would bring fear of an evil that would occur on them. He just simply said this, bless them. Bless them. Let me put it this way. The most powerful spiritual warfare you have is to bless people. That's the most powerful spiritual warfare is worship God and bless people. I just, I don't want to live in that, even in this charismatic church Pentecostal thing, I know the demonic entity is, power, is real, and it comes after us all the time. I get it. I get it. But I like what Bill Johnson says. He goes, I'm not 
hunting devils. If one of them gets in my crosshairs, I'm going to pull the trigger. But I'm not hunting those. I am declaring the promises of God. I am worshiping him. I'm living a life where I'm blessing people. I heard somebody recently tell a story about that. I think it was Graham Cook. I could be wrong. Sitting on an airplane, sits next to a guy, and a guy says, you're here for a reason. I'm going to put curses on you. And Graham was like, let me get my notebook. Hang on. And he's, he's all about it because he understands that these things have nothing. He's like, it's almost like comedy time. Whew, come on, bring them. What do you got? Because I'm going to bless you, and every time I bless you, nothing you have can take, take root in me. Come on. You know, Jesus said that. The ruler of this world is coming, but he has nothing in me. You ever read that before? The ruler of this world is coming, but he has nothing in me. It's Jesus saying, I am living so much in connection with my father. You can do whatever you want, but there's no handles here. Grab all you want. You want to try to grab fear? There's none of that there. You can't grab that. You want to grab an identity issue? There's nothing there to grab. The ruler of this world is coming, but he has nothing in me. (laughs) Can't get it. Keeps grabbing. Can't get a hold of anything. Come on. How many want to live like that? This is new covenant reality. I'm not just blowing sunshine here. This is the reality. <laughs> Jesus did not give fancy methods or special, word, special ways on how to break curses. Not at all. He just said bless people. Paul also says this. He says to the church in Romans 12, 14, and 15, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Come on, that's good. If we're not careful, eventually we can find a curse behind every problem that we have. Just like those in deliverance ministries that blame nearly everything that goes wrong on demonic activity. Something goes wrong and immediately you think it's the outworking of some curse. I think this becomes a very unkind teaching that actually punishes those who are going through fiery trials. Why? Because we're going through a difficult time and then we're told, go look for what's wrong. When the solution is only in Jesus. It's only in Jesus. Let's look for him. Why don't we bring him into the picture and start asking him what he thinks about it? We've said this before. We'll say it again. It's illegal to visit your past apart from Jesus being present. My mind can run to my past all the time. And every time it does and I think about it, even though I've been redeemed, that I've been bought, I've been purchased, I've been brought out, every time I go back to that without Jesus, it never leads to anything good. I have to have Jesus, the person of Jesus, standing there so that when I feel the shame, when I feel the guilt, when I look back at all that stuff, I can ask Jesus, what do you think about that? What were you doing? What am I doing? I'm repenting. I'm changing my mind. I'm getting it set back to what he thinks, coming back to the high place. It's almost like we've got new covenant believers walking around looking for cracks in the sidewalks. We don't want to step on those because that, something bad might happen. Don't want to walk under a ladder. I saw a black cat <laughs> run across my path. You hear what I'm saying, right? I'm making jokes about it, but it's almost like we as new covenant believers who have this phenomenal cosmic power in this itty-bitty space. We have all this, and we look at those kinds of things and think that somehow, since that happened, something's wrong. Now i got to deal with this curse. My God, how difficult to live like that. It's almost like it's saying, Jesus, you said on the cross it's finished, but it's not really. I need to go take care of this now. Man, how terrible is that? What about the apostles? When we look through the New Testament, what about the apostles? What do we see coming from the apostles teaching about generational curses? Nothing. Not once do we see apostles warn the church that any problem could be traced back to a curse in their past. We can't even find the scripture that tells us how to identify generational curses and it's an effect in our lives. There are things that certainly can rob you of the peace that Christ wants you to have. There are things. 
there are, and I want to say this, I want to be very clear on this. While I do not believe unequivocally there is any such thing as a generational curse, there are generational patterns. There are. All of us live with a pattern we were brought up in. But you see the difference. One of them puts you on the treadmill of religion trying to figure out and pray it off. And, the other, and it takes off of us the personal responsibility to come back to believing what Jesus has said. To look at it and say, okay, that is a pattern in my life. That's a pattern that is handed down, but that is not a curse. I have a personal responsibility to take that to the Lord and start asking him, what does my life look like? Because I know that that was bad. And you turn all things around that were bad into good. So at least I can look at that and say, okay, that was not good behavior. That was not good action. That was not love. That was whatever. You label it, but then look at it and say, Jesus, what do you have for me? Are you guys with me right now? Because there is a difference. I think we hyper-spiritualize stuff. Sometimes the eggs you're eating are just eggs. They're not prophetic eggs. Okay, you're with me. I just, I don't, what we want though is we want compartments. We want to make everything about, well, this is this, and this is this, and this is this. And it's like, well, hey, you know, sometimes just enjoy it. Sometimes just enjoy life. We're made for pleasure. Did you know that God created Adam and Eve to live in a garden called Eden? Do you know what Eden translates as? Pleasure. God has designed us to live in pleasure. It's not bad. It's not a bad thing. There's delight in him. There's joy in him. Galatians 5, 1 says, do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. He's not talking about going back into sin. The whole context of that verse is saying, don't go back into living under religious law. And this whole concept, this idea where we've got to chase things down and go find them and dig up with his past, and it's not healthy. It's not healthy. It is good to look at what has, what has been patterns and recognize them and say, okay, that was a learned behavior that's poor. That is not good. This does not help me. You guys still with me here? But don't become entangled again in the yoke of bondage. I think that's what a lot of religion does is it puts, I think I said this last week or the week before, religion does two things primarily. It puts us in a position to do something that we could never do or it puts the demand on Jesus to do something that he's already done. And anytime we do either of those two things, it puts us in a place of passivity. Oh, Jesus, would you please come do this thing? Well, if I read my new covenant, he did that already. So now if I say that, then I can put, be in a position of I prayed. I'm just going to wait and see what God does. Are you guys with me this morning? Yeah. Or it says, God, help me to do this thing right here. Help me to be a peaceful person. Well, he's already done that. He sent you the Holy Spirit, and the fruit of the Holy Spirit is peace. Hello? What I'm saying is it puts responsibility back on us where it belongs. Not to do the work, but to start believing on what he said. I've got to, if I don't believe it, I've got to sit there and work on that thing and meditate on that until it starts changing something on the inside so I can believe that and start living like that. I don't want to behave just to behave. I'm not interested in that. I want to behave as a fruit of believing. Man, that was a lot right there. Galatians 8, 1 and 9. Paul, you don't have to put that up there, but Paul said, one is accursed if they preach a false gospel. Paul's here addressing a curse in a twofold way by stating, if you go back under the law, you are cursed. Do you guys remember that passage? If anyone preaches anything else, let them be accursed. Here he is talking about curses, but again, it's about going back under the law. He's not saying, go look for curses. He's saying, be careful. You go back under the law, you're a wanted man again. Galatians 3.10 says this, for as many as are the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, 
Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. And by the way, guys, the book of the law was not just the Ten Commandments. It was over 600 commandments. And if you want to live by one of them, Paul's saying you've got to live by all of them. And someday you're going to wake up. He even says to the Galatians in the context of this passage right here, he goes, you idiots. Who came in and bewitched you guys? Who the heck came in here and told you that any part of that law is going to get you into your future? Did you receive the Spirit of God by your flesh? Are you thinking now that you've received the Spirit of God and now you can perfect yourself in your own doing? It'll never happen. Cursed is everyone who talks like that. Let their life be cursed. Not because he's trying to put a curse on them. He's saying if you live under the law, that's what you get. There is no way to escape it. I love this. Galatians 3.13. Are you ready? Yet Christ paid the full price to set us free from the curse of the law. He absorbed it completely. Can I read that again? Yet Christ paid the full price to set us free from the curse of the law. He absorbed it completely as he became a curse. Everybody say, he became a curse. He became a curse. He became a curse. Say it again. He curse. Just like he who knew no sin became sin. Right? It wasn't just that sin was put on him and sickness. He became those things. How else was he going to eradicate it? He took, I mean, if you walk with me for a minute with this picture. If you could take curse and make it an entity, that itself was put on the person of Jesus. If you could take sin itself, it is a nature. It is a nature. And it got taken and was put on the person of Jesus. And in his death, absolutely eradicated it. That's good news. That's good news. I don't need to live under a curse. He became the curse. The entire entity of the curse got put on him and absolutely eradicated. He absorbed it completely as he became a curse in our place. For it is written, everyone who is hung on a tree is doubly cursed. Here it is, church. The only place in the New Testament where a curse is mentioned is where it tells us we are free of it. But we still build these things where we got to go back and look for curses. It boggles my mind. I don't know why we do this. We think it's some kind of heightened spiritual awareness, and it's not at all. It's the dumbest thing ever. Paul's teaching to the Galatians is that everyone who submits to the law is obligated to keep the entire law. Let's read Galatians 5.1 here. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. Do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Galatians 5.4. Read this one. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised. He's talking about what was brought in. We talked about this a few weeks ago, the whole circumcision thing. People are trying to bring circumcision back into it. That he's a debtor to keep the whole law. You've become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by the law. Can we just pause on that for a second? The minute I go back into self-help, I'm estranged from Christ. I remove myself from my identity. I remove it completely away. I step back into something that doesn't even exist anymore. I step back into it and I try to accomplish something. He says it right there. You who have become estranged from Christ, those who are trying to keep the law, you attempt to be justified by law. You've fallen from grace. Have you ever heard that term before, fallen from grace? Oh, well, that brother's so bad. So bad. It's a terrible story. They fall from grace. And what we're trying to say is they went back into sin. But the context of this isn't that at all. The context of falling from grace is stepping back into law. It's going back into religion. And the problem I see with that is in the church, people will go back into religion and we'll stand there and applaud it. Good for you. 
wow, you're not sinning anymore. Yeah, but how long is that going to last? You just fell from grace. Just a thought. Romans 10, 4 and 5 says this, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. Can we meditate on that one for a while? It's the end of it for everyone who believes. The good news is we are in Christ. He has redeemed us by fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law, including the penalty for not keeping it. Christ has delivered us from the law, Romans 7, Galatians 2, that we might receive his spirit by faith and be set free from the law of sin and death. This includes any curse that would come because of disobedience to the law. You cannot hold the position that we are justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law, and then teach that the law and its curse still apply to New Testament believers today. It's an oxymoron. It's like jumbo shrimp, right? You know what an oxymoron is, right? It's like Victoria's Secret. It's an oxymoron. Sorry. Pretty sure she doesn't have any secrets. Okay. The judgment due to us for our sin is removed in Christ. Come on, that's a good word. The judgment due to us for our sin is removed in Christ. Hebrews 10. Um, put that one up there, if you would, 1017. The whole book of Hebrews, and I say this all the time, the whole book of Hebrews was written to the Hebrews to tell the Hebrews to stop living like Hebrews. That's the purpose of the book. And you have to understand context. You have to understand context. He's telling all these Hebrews who have tasted and seen of the gift of Jesus Christ, the exact representation of the Father. Everyone who has tasted and seen of who he is, the minute you go back into sacrificial system, you're under the law again. That's why it says there is no, there is no sacrifice remains for those who go back. He's speaking to those who are going back to the practice of the sacrificial system. And here he tells them, verse 17, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Then why are we? Why am I living in a way that's inconsistent with what he's saying exists, the reality of what it is? He says, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. I really do believe sometimes we're trying to bring things up to God, and he's going, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. But I do believe in the middle of that, his heart of compassion, his mercy, and his care and his love is saying, obviously, you care about this. So let's walk with this together. Let's find a way to get through this thing. Let's find a way so this thing doesn't hang you up anymore. In the curse teachings, it actually does exactly the opposite of that passage right there. It says he remembers your sins, and they're applied to you. So I have to ask the question then, what's the significance of the cross? What's the significance of the cross? And how do you know when you get them all? Any of you guys have animals? in your house. You ever have a flea problem? Yeah, come on, seriously. Has anybody ever had a flea problem in your house? And you treat it, but even after it's treated, you sit there and you sit on the couch and you're going... <laughs> come on, it's happened to us, all right? It's happened to us. And I know my wife and I are so like, do you see something? You see something on me? You see something? Look, look, look. It's kind of like that. It's kind of like we don't believe that it's been fully our sin nature, that the curse, we don't feel like it's been dealt with, so we're constantly looking over our shoulder for it, looking at something. Oh, I felt that. Did you feel that? Is there something on me? 
I don't know. I think there's something more for us to, to look at. I don't want to live my life where I'm second guessing like I'm looking for stuff that's already been treated and going, nope, nope, nope. I'm not going to give into that feeling. I'm not going to give into that thought. I'm not going to give into that whatever that is that makes me think that something is still left undone. There's a reason why Jesus said it is finished. Romans 8, 3, 31 through 34 says this. If God be for us, who can be against us? If God be for us, who can be against us? That's a good question to ask. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Well, we know who that is, right? What about this one? No weapon can touch us, right? No weapon formed against me shall prosper. I want to read these to you here. Colossians 1.13. These are like, these really get me here. He has rescued us completely from the tyrannical rule of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom realm of his beloved son. Come on, that's a good one. He has rescued us completely from the tyrannical rule of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom realm of his son. Why are we so obsessed with darkness? Why are we so obsessed with darkness? I don't understand it. I grew up in a culture and in a house and stuff where it was all about, oh, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. It's just, and my dad, he's known for saying this, so I'm not just speaking out of school here. He says this all the time. It's getting gloriously dark. Meaning, the world gets worse, but the kingdom of heaven is coming. But the, as I read my Bible, I realize that things may be getting dark, but I'm not told to prophesy according to my sight. I'm told to prophesy according to my faith. Yeah. So if I see that things are dark... I can't just sit there and say, it's getting dark. I have to look at it and say, no, the kingdom of heaven is invading everywhere I go. Yes. Everywhere I go, because I am now light. Yes. He, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, and later on he says to them, now you're the light of the world. I am the light of the world. I have never in my life seen a light turned on, a light switch turned on, and darkness overwhelm it. Never have I seen that. It's impossible. Did you know that scientifically you can't measure darkness? You can't. There's only light and the absence of it. Now, that sounds ridiculous, but think about from a spiritual standpoint for a moment. We're so assumed, consumed with darkness, but you can't even measure it. You can't even, like, quantify it. You can't say how dark something is. You can only say there's lack of light. But when I bring light into it, it dispels it. I don't know about you. That helps me, though, because it's not like some evil and some good in this war with each other. Good absolutely overwhelms evil absolutely overwhelms it. Yeah. Here's another one, 1 John 5, 18. We are convinced that everyone fathered by God does not make sinning a way of life because the Son of God protects the child of God and the evil one cannot touch him. The evil one cannot touch you. Come on, church, are you there? The evil one can't touch you. You are hidden from touch. You're not hidden from sight. I like to look at it like this, that God loves me so much that he puts me in a display case. He puts me in a display case right in front of the demons. And he says, look at that. Guy's awesome. Guy's amazing. Now, Satan comes along, and he can't touch me. He can't touch me, but he can lie to me. He can come and get in my face, get all up in my grill, and begin to lie to me. And the minute I begin to believe his lie, now I give him power. But that's the only power Satan has. The only power he has in our life is to the degree that we believe his lies. And in a new covenant reality, lies and truth is the entire battle. And all of it happened right here, right there in the head, right between our ears. 
I know I, I joke about this sometimes, but I, I really do believe this. I remember when I first moved here, I was you know, just meeting people, connecting and stuff, and really just trying to find kingdom people. And I remember at one group at one time, there was this prayer meeting thing, and people were like, man, I see this, I see this being over top of the, the, the Bank of America building in, in downtown Orlando, and it's, this, it's hovering over it, and it's dark. And all of I, or all of 50, Colonial Drive has a demonic green train running down it with demonic oppression running down it. And I'm sitting there going, yeah, well, I know the head of principality and power. The word says that. Colossians says he is the head of all principality and power. I know that guy. So I'm not really concerned about that train with the green thing running down it. You hear what I'm saying? I, I know the head. I, I, I know that the, whatever that is that's hanging over that building there that's got, whoa, this woo, evil thing. I'm like, I don't, I'm light. I've got, I know the king. I know the kingdom. I know the head of all principality and power, the exalted one, the high and lifted up one. I know him. I know as long as I stay focused on him that that thing has no power. The only power it's going to have is how much I entertain it and give it. Come on, is this helpful? I know there is spiritual warfare, but I am convinced to my core the best spiritual warfare is blessing people and worshiping. Yes. It is the best spiritual warfare. Why? It puts me back, back in a position of who I am. I come back into the case where I can be seen, but I can't be touched. And now I'm on display. Anybody else want to live on display? Yeah. yeah. I really do believe that the teaching on generational curses may actually demonically inspire fear. It brings people back into bondage and fear. And, and, and it doesn't make any sense because 1 Timothy 1.7 says, he has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Hmm. Jesus, help us. I wasn't going to do this, but I'm going to ask you if you would. I just want to call you Fergie. That's all I can call you all the time. <laughs> Sorry, can you put up uh, 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 17 and 18? I want to end with this right here. I kind of feel like we need to even stand up and say this together. It's going to take him a minute. He'll pull that up. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18. Go ahead and stand up. And I want to end with this with a declaration. We need our minds renewed. Can somebody say amen to that? Yes. The renewed mind is simply this. It's the mind that starts thinking like God thinks. It's not the, guy, it's not the mind that's just filled its, filled its head with scripture. I think that's powerful. We need to memorize scripture. But there is something between the scripture moving from our head into our heart. And that's why David says, your word I have hidden in my heart, not my head. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Until it becomes something down here where it's in the visceral core part of who we are, it doesn't have any effect. But I want us to take this and I want us to read it together. Are you ready? Now, if anyone is enfolded into Christ, stop, stop right there. I don't believe you. I don't believe you. And by the way, this is not an if-then. You get enfolded into Christ because of what he does, not because of what you do, okay? Here we go. Now, if anyone is enfolded into Christ, he has become an entirely new person. All that is related to the old order vanished. Behold, everything is fresh and new. And God has made all things new and reconciled us to himself and given us the ministry of reconciling others to God. Come on. This is your assignment right here. Your newness is not based on what you think. Your newness is based on what he has done. It's our job to live in this reality that all things have become new. If you're not seeing all things new, if I'm not seeing all things new, perhaps we should sit and meditate on that until it becomes new again. So we start to see it appropriately. And listen, what is your job? 
He's given us the ministry of reconciliation. He's given us the ministry of reconciliation. He did not come to the church and say, here's your dedicated truth, decency, and order badge. I want you to go around and tell everyone about what's right and what's wrong. That is not the job of the church. The job of the church is to preach the reconciliation of Jesus Christ. That is the job of the church. People know how bad sin is. They know how bad their lives are. What they need to hear is what God has done and what's right. Can we agree with that? Hold your hands out here. I'm just going to pray for you. Lord, I'm praying, Holy Spirit, you do the thing that you do, that you bring us into a whole new revelation, that we enjoy living in a place of repentance, that we, we, we become to look at repentance as a lovely way, ongoing way of life. Lord, as your Holy Spirit just begins to make sense, just drop stuff in about what the realities are of a new creation, who we really are, that all things have become new, that you have become the curse. And in that you have broken it. You have broken it. We choose to live under new covenant realities. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 All right. Do we have ministry teams today? Ministry teams, go ahead and make your way up here. Um, if you need prayer for anything, anything at all, this is why we're here. We want engagement. We want to make sure that you're getting prayer for whatever it is you need. So ministry teams are going to come up here, and I'm just going to pray blessings over you guys and that you encounter Jesus more and more. Amen? Amen. Lord bless you all. Thank you for listening to the Acts 2 podcast. Love God, love people, and live life.